What a splendid time to be alive. Just one amen from Dave. <laughs> hey? That'll be a tough morning. <laughs> this is it. It's a good time to be alive. No one else is feeling that? Let's just pray. Father, Lord, we come before you this morning. God, encouraged, challenged, excited. Father, we ask, Lord, that your voice would speak to us this morning. Wherever it is that we are, Lord, we just ask that you would reach in to the depth of our heart, God, and reveal your incredible kingdom, your amazing heart. Jesus, you are the one in which we serve, the holy great king, and God, I ask this morning that anything that I say that's not of you, may it fall away. God, but what you want to speak to us here this morning, may it take root deep in our heart, Lord. And may it begin to grow and flourish in our life, Lord. May we be image bearers of your great kingdom and your, who you are, Jesus. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen. I want to start this morning with something a little unusual. I want to read you something. And then we're going to get into a pretty hefty portion of scripture, but I'm not going to break it down word for word, I promise. And then we're going to pray together. Just giving everyone a rundown of where we're going. But I want to read you this. Sociologists were studying the power of addiction, so they put a rat in a cage and they gave it two water bottles. One is just water and one water is laced with heroin or cocaine. In most cases, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself in a couple of weeks. And that became our theory of addiction, that when a rat was in a cage, almost every time it would take the drug-laced water. Until a scientist by the name of Bruce K. Alexander came along in the 70s and he said, well, hang on, we're putting the rat in an empty cage. It has nothing to do. Let's try this a bit differently. So he built a rat park. And Rat Park is like heaven for rats. Everything a rat could want is in Rat Park. Lovely food, lots of sex, other rats to befriend, coloured balls. Plus both water bottles, one with water and one with drugged water. But here's what's fascinating. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They hardly use it. None of them overdose. None of them use it in a way that looks like compulsion or addiction. What Bruce shows is that both the right and left wing theories of addiction are wrong. The right-wing theory is that it's a moral failure, that you're a hedonist, you party too hard. And the left-wing theory is that it takes you over, your brain becomes hijacked. Bruce says it's not your morality, it's not your brain, it's your cage. Addiction is largely an adaptation of your, envi of your environment. Now, we created a society where significant numbers of us can't bear to be present in our lives without being on something, drinks, drugs, sex, shopping. We've created a hyper-consumerist, hyper-individualist, isolated world that is, for many of us, more like the first cage than the bonded, connected, connected cages that we need. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And our whole society, the engine of it, is geared toward making us connect with things, not people. You are not a good consumer citizen if you spend your time bonding with the people around you and not stuff. In fact, we are trained from a young age to focus our hopes, dreams, and ambition on things to buy and consume. Drug addiction is a subset of that. This is written by a guy named 
named Joan and Hari. And when I read this, I started to think about the church and understand our world as an environment. Obviously, we are in a time of transition and change, and I'm going to get to that later. But I started to think, what is our addiction in this place? And what is our addiction in the world? And I didn't know where I was going to go with this. If you saw my notes compared to my old notes, you'll be frightful as to where I'm going as I was before worship. Sometimes I write sermons and it all comes. Sometimes I sit down to write and can't see anything until I get to worship. But as I was in worship, God reminded me of the story I was going to tell. And he said, I put two drink bottles in the cage. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But God also put in the garden himself. God also wandered with us, walked in the cool of the day, in the ruah, in the power of the day, in the spirit he walked. And he asked the people, Adam and Eve, to keep their eyes on him and allow him to lead and guide them. And I started thinking that in our age today, we live in a time where, like this author writes, that we focus on things, not on people. And this is paramount for where we're going because we're talking about a building, we're talking about substance, but we're forgetting what fills the the building, what fills the substance. We as a people are the church. We as a people are community. We as a people are where God is leading us and calling us. And as I started to think through this, I thought, man, even in your church, God, we have become addicted. We've become addicted to the lights and the sounds. We've become addicted to the coffee. We've become addicted to the worship music. We've become addicted to the things that aren't of you, Lord, and it is killing us. Because we just keep hitting the water bottle. But then the author says, I'll fill it with other things. And this addiction for us changes from our work to our iPhones to drugs, to pornography, to a person. And we just keep moving and moving and moving. And in some regards, we've belittled addiction to set free care and what Sean and Coco and Mount Edie do there. But that's not the only place we have addiction. It's in our lives. Regularly, it's in our lives. We navigate this position of, Lord, where are you calling us? Where are you leading us? That's why the Bible says to put our eyes on things that are above because he becomes... He becomes the place that we seek for guidance and counsel. And as I was going through the week, Jess and I were, we were in this building and we started to reminisce a little bit about what it looks like and where it's come and we started to get a little bit sad because there's this feeling that we belong in this place. But then there was this excitement that if this isn't it, there's something else, right? Because our realization that this has become more of who we are than who God is. This has become more of what we are feeling in something. The, the ownership of a building or a church name or a, or a program has become more about who God is than him actually being in us. And he said, if you turn it into an addiction, I will take it from you. When we look all through scripture, when the Israelites turned their things into addictions, God stripped it from them. Now, I'm not saying that God has taken this building from us in terms of of some sort of punishment. What I'm saying is that as we, the church, in Western civilization and all throughout the globe, if we tend to make things in our environment addictions, God will strip them from us because he wants to be the only thing in our life that we draw from. And it's funny, I was just now watching a movie last night and my phone died probably a few minutes before we turned the movie on. 
and I put my phone on the couch across from me. It was dead. There was no power in it. But can I tell you how many times I picked my phone up and tried to click it to turn it on mid-movie? I was like, oh, no, it's dead. So I put it back. Five minutes later, I picked it up. I clicked it. Oh, it's dead. I put it back. And then I realized, ooh, that's a bit scary. And I say this all to say one thing is that we have to become a people who will live like that with Scripture as our foundation. God as our foundation, but called and led through what he's written to us. That when we become a people so engrossed in who he is, so engrossed in what he's doing, that that is our our bottle of water. That's the tree that we eat from all the time. Let me tell you this, there will always be two trees in your garden. Because it's that that draws us closer to God. There will always be that thing that's louder and calling to you. There will always be that thing that wants you more than you want it. And the more times you give in, the louder the voice is. But God says, come, draw to me and I will draw unto you. James, right? Draw to me and I will draw unto you. When we start to give in to him and start to walk and incline in, into him, he will in turn incline into us. There was a, a wrestler, I can't remember his name, but he, he said this at a, at a um, motivational speak to a group of young kids. He said, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And what he was saying was he was saying that what you put around you is where you're heading. Oftentimes we see people come and they say, I can't get out of this mess. And you look in their life, you know, yeah, because everything that you are is in that place. You are living in that again and again and again. And God is saying, break the cycle and I will move into your life. If you've got a Bible, go to Hebrews 11 for me. Hebrews 11. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. What we want to do as we move forward, and this is not just for us as a, as a house, or this is for you individually. The reason that we, I preached last week about being a family, about being connected, about being around the dining room table because you're missed when you're not. The reason that we want you to be here and be a part of what we're doing is not because it makes you a good boy or girl or a good Christian or well done, you only missed two Sundays this year. It's because in that we actually get to the place where we're saying we're building together as a people. When we actually get to know each other, we know each other's stories, we know where they come from, we know where they're going, we begin to edge each other on to walk alongside one another. That when we come and worship together here on a Sunday morning, it's an overflow of who we are during the week. It's not the key main experience here on Sunday morning. It becomes the overflow of us. If you look around this room, albeit small, and there's somebody in this room you don't know, you don't know their name or you don't know their story? My question to you is why? Why don't you know? And the answer, I think, is quite simple because we haven't asked, 
right? We haven't taken the time to actually get to know that person. And this is not a condemnation. I'm not saying you have to. I'm saying as a people, when we stand and sing, we are a family with God. We are called in unity to you, Lord. Then that means something to us. And what it begins to mean is that when I'm hurting, I know Timmy's with me. And I know that he can pick up that I'm hurting before I tell him that I'm hurting. Why? Because we're friends. We're family. We're close. And there's many others in this room that I don't spend as much time with Timmy that I know can be the same. Something's off, bro. Are you okay? The way that that happens is we begin to be close with one another. We become a, a, a unified body, a community, common unity around one thing, Christ. If I didn't know Jesus, I probably wouldn't know Dave Bosch. Because we have different worlds. He's from Canada. Right? Our worlds wouldn't have clashed if it wasn't for Christ. But it's Christ that brings the unity that he becomes my brother. And I become, I care for him. It's in that place that as we spend time together, as we build in unity with Christ, that we begin to actually want to fight for one another and want to actually stand for one another. But there's something else that comes, and it's in, 11, it's in Hebrews 11. I'm going to read quite a, a, por- a hefty portion of this. So I would encourage you to read along so you can actually see it. But I don't want to get bogged down. We know what faith is. I preached about it a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, that we know that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, which is taken from this verse. But it's the next part of the back end of Hebrews 11 that I want us to talk through. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Through it, which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift. And through his faith... Though he, di- he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith not having received things promised, but having seen them all greeted from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they have been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them a city. Continues on talking about other great men and women of faith. But it calls these men and women that they were led by the faith of God, things that have been hoped for, the unseen things hoped for. Could you imagine Noah being called in a land of drought to build a boat? And every day having people walk up and say, what are you doing? I'm building a boat, man. It's not rained here forever. You've lost the plot. I would have said that to him. Hey, is that God? I heard God say. I heard God say. That's a man who is so devoted to the voice of God that he would let those around him call him fool. He was so devoted. He was so addicted to who God is, to his personhood, that he said, Lord, send me, I'll go. I'll do whatever it is you ask of me. See, we can stand in a place like a Sunday morning when the lights are low and the music is playing and say, Lord, send me, I'll go. And then Monday opens its bright white eyes and you think, Lord, hold me, I'll stay. And I want to say this morning, I I had to come before God because during the week I said to God, Lord, Give me the exit ramp and I'll take it. Show me the door and I'll walk out of it. But as I was praying that during the week, God said, but you told me you'd come. You told me you'd go. And during worship this morning, I just said to God, I did. I said that I would go. Lord, send me. But there's times in our faith where it gets hard. There's times in our faith where we look around and we say, God, this is too much. There would have been a time in Noah's faith with a hammer in his hand where he said, Lord, are you insane? You realize these people think I'm an idiot. You realize there's no rain. You realize that this boat is on dry land and we don't have the right tools or technology to move it to where the water is. And God says, Noah, did you say yes? Lord, I did, but no buts. If you said yes, hold and wait for me. We can all say yes while the fire is being lit, but when it gets full, when it gets turned on, I, I believe now, this is version of Ben, that when Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were walking toward the fire, they start thinking to themselves, hey, hey, looking around like, Lord, as the doors get open, they feel the fire on their face, they're going, Lord, hey, Come on now. You said you'd never leave me or forsake me. The guard says, step on in. I reckon there was a moment. Okay, well, he's not coming for us. And they step in the fire. See, in our faith, when it's the things unseen, when it's the things that God calls and leads us to, it's the things that he's sending us into. He says, wait for me. It's in the unknown that I bring. It's in the things It's in the things." that are unseen in your assurance of me. Do you know why God does that? Because he wants to see, do you really mean it then? Do you really mean it? Do you mean that you will love me at the end? Do you mean that you will be with me in the middle? There's a song that Coco shared with me, and I don't know what it's called, but she'll send it to you if you want it. But it, it says, God, we are thankful in the beginning, in the middle, and the end. Because it's easy to be thankful in the beginning 
it's easy to be pumped and excited when the slab gets laid, as the Hotons know. But midway through, you start thinking, goodness gracious me, what have we done? Do we even want this? In this verse, in Hebrews 11, 14, there's something that really captured my eye while I was, I was reading this during the week. It says, for people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Do you know where Moses was thinking when he left Egypt? He saw the promised land. He was thinking about the promised land. So when those in his midst turned against him and said, Moses, you're a bad leader. You're not leading us where we should go. We're going back to Egypt. What does Moses do? Nothing. Why? Because his eyes weren't on Egypt. His eyes were on the promised land. Hey, you guys can go. But I know where my faith is. So if you can't see that in me any longer, go. But I've got to go where we're going because my eyes are there. If Moses' heart and eyes were back in Egypt, guess what he would have done? These guys are right. Pack it up. We're going back. So I want to challenge you this morning for all of us, myself included, but for you in this house and in your life, what is God calling you to? And are your eyes on the thing that he last called you to? Do you still have in your hand something that he's asked you to do a long time ago and that's more comfortable for you? Maybe that's a job. Maybe that's a city. Maybe that's a place you're in. But I want to ask, would you go back to God and ask him to recommit your life and re-give you the call that he first laid on your heart? Because when you know that, when you know that, you know where you're going. This week, I, I was in a place where, like I said before, I was willing to, to toss it in. I said to God, Lord, I'll go and do something else. And God said, I called you. And I realized, flip, God called me. <laughs> and that sounds insane that you knew that. Yeah, but it's the faith that wavers. It was my faith in his call that had diminished. It was my faith in who he had said I am and who he said I will be that was diminished. It was my faith that was my issue. And when God says, no, I've called you to something bigger, stop drinking from the drugged water, that I realized, Lord, forgive me. Let me go back to what you've called me to. My eyes were on the things that were past so I have an opportunity to return. Lord, close that door. There's only one way. It's forward. There's only one direction you can go. It's forward. Into my promises and my plans that I have. Into the things that you've called me to. Because he continues on. In Hebrews 11:17. he continues on. He says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. 
By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each one of the sons of, of Joseph, blowing, uh, sorry, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were afraid and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated by the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid, of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and he sprinkled the blood so the destroyer of the firstborn uh, born might not touch him. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea and as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they were tempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets that we can continue on into the New Testament time and time and time and time again, faith by faith by faith by faith, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of the weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. All of this amazing recount of what took place before us outlaid by the faith of God in the things hopeful, the things not seen. And it continues on to speak about the, the powerful ways that they were mistreated, but still their faith continued on. Imprisonment, flogging, stoning. They were, they were tortured, yet their faith in who God was held tight. And then it ends with this, into verse 12. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for who the joy that was set before him endured the cross, dispensing the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, on the throne of God. Your faith is not limited by how much you can muster it up. It says that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of the faith that moves mountains, of the faith that closes the mouth of lions, of the faith that, that stops the pain and suffering, that brings justice, that sheds light in the darkness. It's by our faith that God has put in us. So we sit back, we go, Lord, how do I increase my faith? Well, you let me do it. I created it. I perfect it. When we lean into Jesus, when we truly understand what it means to lean in, to, to come close to Him, to spend time with Him, to commune with Him, it's in that place that our faith is restored. My faith is not restored by, by 
my own conjuring, by my own way of, of, of being stronger and thinking better, becoming smarter. You know, I realized during the week, I'm not smart enough to do this. I'm not clever enough. But God is. So it's in Him that I lean into. And this goes for all of us, not just in this instance. I'm going to pray into that in a minute. But this goes for all of us in the sense of, Lord, where is my faith in an area? Am I in that cage where there's nothing else but that thing that I'm touching onto? Whether that's the, the way I'm looking at the world, the way I'm seeing what's taking place, the way I'm seeing the, the, the news articles, the new Google thing, the, the Twitter feeds, the, all these things, are they the drug that I'm pounding all the time? Is that what's feeding me? Or is there actually a, 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 a clean, healthy water of life that's being spread into my body? What am I taking of and what am I addicted to? God is the, found, is the founder and the finisher of our faith. Without it, we're in big trouble. Without that faith, this world looks very bleak. Without the faith of God, the housing market's going to crash. The economy's going to crash. Western civilization's going to fall over. We're going to have chips in our brain. There's going to be monsters coming to eat us. You can go on and on and on and on it goes. Without the faith of God that I am who he says that I am and I've been placed where he's placed me, it's a very dark future. It's a very bleak place. But to know that he has called me and he is making my path and as I step where he asks me to step, I will dodge the monsters. I will dodge the brain chip mechanisms. I will dodge the snakes in the water. I will dodge whatever it is that is coming before me. Lord, when you put me where you've asked me to be, I will be in the right place to do. Now that may mean that there's pain and suffering, but my faith is that he will be in the fire. My faith is that, Lord, this makes no sense. You've asked me to kill my only son by which you said the nations will be born. Kill him. But, Lord, it makes no sense. Yeah, but I asked you to. Okay. My plan is greater and bigger than yours. And then we know the story. He doesn't kill his son. We know the story. There was a fourth man in the fire. Time and time and time and time and time again, the world makes no sense. But the kingdom of God, the kingdom realm, makes a lot more sense. Edie, can I have my slide, please? We're going to break into a couple of groups. It's not the fixed one. That upsets Jess. Jess helped me fix it and make everything center, and then I sent the wrong one. But bad luck, you get my broken one, not Jess's fun, nice one. We're going to break into a couple of groups. We're going to pray into our future. We're going to hold these four points, these four verses in our prayer time. Galatians 2.20, Matthew 6.10, Colossians 3.2, and Galatians 5.16. We're going to ask and pray that we become nothing, that we die to ourselves and that we live as Christ lived. We're going to ask God to lay down our will to allow his will to come. We're going to ask God that he would help us to set our eyes on the things that are above to live from that place. And we're going to ask God to help us yield to the Spirit and not be stiff-necked. Stiff-necked meaning the things that we want, that we look at. We refuse to look anywhere else. And I want to ask that as we pray for this in our little groups, that we would pray not just for our community, but if you would include praying for our community in this. But not just for a building, for direction for us as a people, 
for the people who are here and for those who will come, for our leadership and for more leadership to join our team to help grow and, and strengthen us for our finances, that finances wouldn't be a hindrance for us moving forward and that we would have influence into the city. But I also want you to pray in your own life. If you can grab these four things in the next season of your life and earnestly pray that you would die to yourself, that, would, that you would lay down your will and allow his to come, that you would set your eyes on the things that are above and live from that place and that you would yield to the spirit of God. If you can honestly get to that place, I promise you, I promise you, your life will change. Your darkness will leave and light will come. That your understanding of this dark world will change. If this becomes the water you drink from, if this becomes the thing that you actually begin to diligently pray. I spoke last week about Acts 2, that they devoted themselves to the prayer and supplication. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles of scripture. They devote, if you can devote yourself to asking God to reveal these four things and change your life in this way, I promise money back guarantee your life will change. I'll even put the money up out of my own pocket. Your life will change. If you can diligently bring yourself to this, to lay yourself down, to allow his will to come. Before we break into our groups, we have a move out date. Now, before I tell you what the move-out date is, I want to tell you this. Jess and I are not worried. We're not panicked. This move-out date is not why I was feeling challenged during the week. That it was my own challenges. I actually feel more peace than I've ever felt in this whole process, having received this move-out date. So I want to ask that you won't panic, but I want you to pray with us. Because the first question you're going to ask when I tell you what the move-out date is, is where are we going? And I want to tell you that I am midway through building a boat when there's no rain. I don't know where we're going. But I'm asking God in faith, with the things hoped for, that he will bring about a place for us to go. The last Sunday that we will be in this building is the 10th of July. That allows us four more Sundays, including the one we're currently in. So this one and three more. We will then pack everything else up, and my hope in things unseen, is that we will be moving them to our building. But if that's not the case, if the case is that we go into a space that is inter intermediate, inter in the middle, <laughs> interim, interim, thank you. If we go into a place that's interim, so be it. We will move as God asks us to move. We will go where he's asked us to go. So we are not worried at this because of this very point. Our community is right here, us as a people, and a few people that are away. Our community is a people who will move and go wherever God's asked us to move and go. I want to ask this of you, though. Please be patient with us. If we have to change the date or the time, we're not setting out to make it harder for you to get here or easier for you to get here. We are going to go and move as we need to. If it means we have to use another church and go to an evening service or a different day or a, a, a park and, and move around, then that's what we're going to do. We're hoping that's not the case. However, we are willing to step wherever we have to to keep moving forward. So four more Sundays. The first Sunday in our new location will be the 17th of July. 
venue TBA I've put down here in my notes. In case we just moved over it quickly. But I just want to, I just want to, so we, we will pray. I just want to say this, that, that regardless of where we land, regardless of where we go, Jesus has still blessed us and is still blessing us. Him pouring out on us is not subject to us having a building of our liking. It's not subject to the way we feel. It's not subject to, to how comfortable or uncomfortable we feel, right? I'm sure to be sure that Noah was not chuffed and comfortable while he was doing what he was doing, right? Or any of, I'm sure to be sure that the Apostle Paul was not overjoyed while he was being beaten at the gates to continue the call to be a little bit brutal. But the, the, what, the fact that remains is that as a community, we will continue to do what we did this morning. Hail King Jesus. Worship and glorify his name. To declare his goodness. To declare who he is. Last thing before we pray. Please pray. Please pray. You're going to get in a group of three. If you need to, choose the three most comfortable people you know in order to pray. But don't get in a group and stay silent. Even if you just pray this, Lord, you are the King of kings. We trust you. If that's your prayer, great. But please pray. Because as we begin to open our mouths together in unity, we will see something shift. Amen? Awesome. Jump in your group of three. Whoever you want in your group. Father, we just thank you. God, I thank you for every person in this room. Father, for those who aren't here, Lord, we just, we just agree with the prayers that have been prayed. Father, we ask that your will be done in this time. Jesus, I thank you. We love you. We honor you. And in your beautiful name, Lord, we have prayed and stand with you in this. In your name we pray. Amen.